Hi, Greg Perry. Welcome to The Historic Preservationist. Tonight we're going to uh, expound upon the Philadelphia chair making 1685 to 1785. Um, chair making is, is, is a highlight of all furniture making. Um, it's it's the, the combination of art, engineering, science, craftsmanship, and it hits peak in that, uh, that hundred year period in the colonies in Philadelphia. I mean, it's it's almost unjustifiably uh, incorrect that we can, we can transpose or even con contrast and compare Philadelphia chairs with those of, uh, those of the UK. I mean, they're a different type chair, and, and we have to remember that our styles came from their styles, lagging 20, 25 years behind. And, uh, you know, Thomas Chippendale was setting the trends in the UK with a couple other major makers. And let us not forget that Chippendale by and large, didn't come up with many of his own designs, even in the, the various editions of the director, his design book. Uh, they were stolen, absolutely stolen from the French. The French were setting the designs in the world since 1650. He would attend various gallery openings through the 17th, uh, or those early 18th century, rather, and uh, he, Chippendale himself, he would send his underlings over. They buy, they buy components, they buy chairs, they try to buy people, they try to buy designers, buy everything about it. So in a roundabout way, here in the colonies, say we're talking about Philadelphia chairs, it all comes around in a very, very circuitous way. But uh, nothing is a more beautiful form. And uh, the Philadelphia chair, I mean, the Philadelphia chair, like a very beautiful woman, uh, she's beautiful at all angles. And the, this was the intent of these artisans, that that chair would sit in the middle of the room, say in front of a gaming table or a tea table, and, and just captivate the audience. Um, and, and there was a point where, you know, the great artist had to succumb to the great furniture makers sometime in that first quarter of the 18th century. Furniture ruled well over painters. I mean, painters were just in another three or four leagues below the furniture makers. And, and with the these wonderful carved frames that were being that were encasing these these pieces of art, these paintings. Nobody was buying the the, the paintings; they were buying the frame themselves. So uh, very very interesting. So the use of sets of chairs was significantly different in the eighteenth century from the present time. It was common practice in affluent households to have a set of chairs in the parlor, the hall, the dining room, and frequently the main bedchamber. Chairs were quite naturally reflect an artistic compatibility with other furniture forms in the same room. So as we've spoken in the past podcast, uh, for instance, clocks, say tall case clocks, their, their cases in the beginning were very utilitarian. And then, you know, after, after more people could afford them, more castles and manor houses could afford them, maybe not the everyday person. But what happened is that the basic case, which was a functionality to maintain the clock, uh, to keep the pendulum and the weights from being stopped by the cat, the house cat, uh, or keeping the uh, environmental contaminants, the oils floating through the air out of the mechanism to shut it down. Then the cases began to develop in the, the style of the day, and um, they began to creating suites of furniture with the same styles, the same, same little bit of acanthus carving per se or shells and everything seemed to be matched uh, ush ushering in the uh, the the word of a, a suite of furniture and uh, um, so 
Philadelphia produced a prodigious number of high-end styles from 1685 to 1785. It may seem presumptuous to suggest that the quality of all Philadelphia examples is very high, but if your artistic, your artistic and intellectual curiosity has not been satisfied or merely aroused, then one must open their eyes to the beauty of the Philadelphia chairs. So it's something we, if we tend to look at, and unfortunately younger people today, who I run into and many of my colleagues and cohorts around the world, uh, people under 50 are not into furniture. They think it's just old brown wood. And I don't, I don't think they have any conception of the high quality of artistic craftsmanship and engineering it took to make these pieces. And uh, I think they're so resided that everything comes out of a, a 3D printer or a, a, some fantasizing machine you throw a tree and it comes out. Um, so that's where the interest has waned in the last, what, 20 years or so. And hence the values reflect this. The first settlers arriving in Philadelphia in 1682 brought with them a long-established tradition of furniture design essentially medieval in character. We know they came primarily from the west of England, an area which forms of triangle, triangulization around Gloucestershire. Early tradition dictated the use of oak for the more Provencal-oriented society in Philadelphia. Today, only a handful of these oak forms have survived. Um, oak is, in general, um, I, my career spanning 35 years as a furniture maker, and after the first two or three years of working with oak, I would always say it's a peasant wood. Um, but let's face it, it has its place in the, the lineage and evolutionary development of furniture making. We had to get from A to, a to D, and oak was the beginning. And unfortunately, a lot of these oak pieces, the chairs and the joint leg tables and stools have been destroyed and just thrown out over the years. So I always have my eye out on various auctions around the country. One may show up just to you know, feel fortunate enough to have one in my possession for the rest of my life. Um, and don't forget these oak forms, these chairs, they, these were literally plank seat chairs. The backs were a plank, and it was the most rigid, uncomfortable, bloody thing you can imagine. And that form had basically square legs with a stretcher system underneath. And it had a carved, the carved plank back, the, the back became carved and decorated. And eventually, as the styles changed, that carving would creep and find its way onto arms, stumps, legs, aprons, and things of that nature. So this is just the beginning. Since walnut timber had become the fashionable wood toward the end of the 17th century in England, it quickly replaced oak in Philadelphia. So walnut, uh, walnut to me today is almost, it's the ultimate domestic wood. Um, it carves so well, carves easily. It's hard, but not too hard. It carves crisp. Uh, I can make a good line, a good cut with a, with a good sharp carving tool. Uh, it comes already stained, it's already chocolate brown. It's a bit porous, but not too porous. I think in most cases, a lot less porous than mahogany. So uh, it's, it's kind of the ultimate cabinet wood, but uh, in my career, since you know began in the, the mid 80s, early 80s, um, walnut was really out of vogue and has never come back yet. And 
Again, it's this adage of, quote, old brown furniture. We don't need it in its older antique state, nor do we need to create something out of it now. Um, so it gave us a luxury of having a wood that could be much more easily carved and less tool breakage and things of that nature. In Philadelphia, the Queen Anne style came into vogue in the 1720s, featuring this walnut timber. Most of the seating furniture has an angular cabriole leg. The earliest chairs had square seat frames. The open opening years of the Chippendale period saw Philadelphia becoming the richest city in the colonies in the 1760s, manifesting itself in the first generation of Quakers. And the Quakers were the real movers and shakers. They were the real commerce heads. They were laying down the lines of commerce in Philadelphia. It's hard to believe that back in those 1760s, Philadelphia was the capital, and it actually dwarfed New York, Boston. There was nothing close to Philadelphia. So what happened here is all the great master craftsmen from England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, anyone who wanted to come here came to Philadelphia. And hence the greatest style and the greatest complexity of furniture was made in the Philadelphia style. By the third generation, the Quaker class began dictating decorative taste. A growing sense of opulence prompted a traveler to write in the London Gentleman's Magazine that Philadelphia was culturally second only to London in the world. And again, we're talking about culture, design, anything that was chic. So, so Philadelphia at that point, hard to believe, but no, it was. 1760s to around 1800, only second to London. And Paris was probably lagging behind. Paris would have been the cultural epicenter probably from the 1650s up, in, up until the 1750s. Understanding the Chippendale style was quite complicated by terminology. The English developed hierarchical examples through the period, or reigns, of George I, II, and III. Yet Chippendale is the only work with Thomas Chippendale's designs. So one of the few makers, what makes Chippendale interesting, and now we, we've spoken about him in the past, is Chippendale was really one of the first that we know about that had a shop set up um, to fulfill all the needs. There were jointers, there were um, plankers of timber, there were carvers, designers, and builders, uh, finishers, everything under one roof. Even down there, as we spoke in the past, Chippendale actually setting up his entire funerals, making coffins, providing the, the pallbearers and the carriage. So this is uh, you know, quite, quite interesting, uh, which... Again, he's the only one we can really relate back to. All the other makers and carvers, everyone else was doing it in a cottage industry style. Just say on a, on a South Street or Walnut Street in Philadelphia, you would have had a joiner and they would have rolled the timber right next door to the, the builders of the furniture. And, and it was put together in a cottage industry, not under one roof. That, that made uh, Chippendale quite unique. In America... We are forced to call all chairs that are not Queen Anne Chippendale, but actually only a small portion of these relate in any way to Thomas Chippendale's, his cabinet maker's director published in 1754. We must remember that the Philadelphia version of Thomas Chippendale and the English version are two different things. The brilliance of the Philadelphia school is evidenced in the superseding in its continual awareness of these new fashions in London incorporating those suitable and reinterpreting them without ever losing their own native, original, and artistic integrity. 
So let's let's talk about Queen Anne. And, and generally in America, the the style runs from 1720 to 1760. So in this time, you're you're talking basically the English counterpart would have been George the Third. Turnings were to a joiner, and a turner in the William and Mary period, what line was to the cabinet maker in the Queen Anne period. It would seem that the success of the Philadelphia style in part resulted from the strong disciplinary nature of Quakerism. In these early years, while the city was growing and prospering, the arts and affluent lifestyles were looked upon as a sensuous form of enjoyment. So food was really second nature. What who's who and what you had and um, your amount of culture that you carried was dictated by and not what you wore, but by your dwelling, your home. The architecture on the outside of your home, the, the woodwork on the inside, and most of all, those accoutrements, the furniture that you set it up with. And today, we've, we've totally lost this today. We, we see people running around in cars, and, and I often, here comes a BMW behind you. These people think they belong to a club, and they, they must think they are a BMW. And I'm just using this as an example. It could be a Mercedes, but... Uh, you know, they, they, they morph into this when they get into this car and they're out there. And I, I think what they don't understand is we just see this, this piece of metal made by robotics zipping by us on the highway. We don't see that person inside. He thinks, he thinks we see it. We don't see it. And I guess he's just fulfilling his ego or something. So, um, so look at where we've come from. So we've come from um, aggrandizing things made by serious craftsmen, artists, and engineers to stuff plastic and metal and uh, objects made by robots. So that shows where our, uh, our uh, quality values lie today in this world. Uh, the simple unadored furniture of the first period had fostered in the craftsmen a basic and fundamental understanding of line and proportion acceptable to most segments of the society. The continued impact of current English fashion that was present in the rest of the colonies was on basically apparent in Philadelphia. One must recognize that Bristol and London were only six to eight weeks away from each other and that a ship could bring news to Philadelphia of the most recent vogues in a matter of three or four months. So even, even though a, a, a boat could bring this information in three or four months, I don't really think that the Philadelphia merchant nor the Philadelphia buyer had the beat of the fashion of the furniture or the decorative arts. It took years. And, and I think for the most part, it actually took these Philadelphians or the New Yorkers at the time or Bostonians to make trips to Europe to see these decorative arts and that, to order them and have them shipped back. And once their friends started seeing that, that's when the stylistic changes took over. And then, they, for instance, they may have brought the British versions back. And, you know, it was a hassle. Look, it's a hassle to ship these things over. It's expensive. It takes a long crossing. It's dangerous. So you can get your cabinet maker, furniture maker down the street and say, hey, can you make me something like this? And hence, this next, next style was in its infancy and being developed. Benjamin Franklin wrote to his London agent to order for his new Philadelphia home the most current canary yellow damask, all in silk. And this damask traditionally at that point was all made in Italy, but 
probably uh, mercantile through, uh, through London. But we must also state that Quakerism impeded acceptance of a lot of the cutting-edge flamboyant and decorative styles that could have been added to Philadelphia furniture designs. So in retrospect now, the Quakers were running commerce of every way, shape, or form, tavern life to selling decorative arts to selling homes, building homes, laying out the city. They did it with uh, a conservative edge, so to speak. So, and, and that may not have been a bad thing because maybe the Philadelphia design could have been really over-designed with too much flamboyant carving. So I think the secret to Philadelphia furniture is great proportion, number one, um, Phenomenal line and accept it and just exceptional ornamentation applied over that. The English antiquarians successfully marketed Irish furniture to their collectors in the 19th and 20th centuries as English products. These were very high-end de- designs to alter the Provencal image. Lines are blurred and problems exist in an absolute identification. So whether we're talking about the line between Queen Anne and Chippendale or Irish and English, Scottish and English, there's always blurred lines. I mean, the blurred lines of cabinet-making shops or commerce or, you know, and, and that, that's, for, that's for another talk. There is no absolute English counterpart to the Philadelphia Queen Anne chair, and therefore we may proudly look upon it as a native invention of good line and proportion. It was not until the end of the period that one can fully experience the evolved Philadelphia concept of line and proportion with its compass, shaped seat, and back in the fully expressed shell and voluted crest rail. No period of cabinet making could have so totally fulfilled its artistic responsibility to a society that made such a lasting contribution to an overall culture. The Philadelphia Queen Anne chair with its richness of ornamentation and artistic opulence, must have appeared quite foreign to the taste of the Quaker founding fathers. So let's get into the Chippendale style. Chippendale, 1755 through 1785. In the end, one must turn to the quality of the carving, its design and execution if we were to experience the overall success of Philadelphia chairmaking at its height. The concern is not so much with who made the chair as it is with the quality resulting from the lines and proportions and the overall relationship of the carved ornamentation to the piece itself. But I still feel that in America we have too many, quote, scholars, people with just degrees in history, and I think a scholar deserves to have a lot of dexterous skill involved taking apart furniture, not necessarily building furniture, but there's too many uh, white-collar people doing this, unfortunately. So, uh, um, But I, I do agree highly with the, the last statement, with lines of proportion and the relationship with the cor- carved ornamentation of the piece itself is what makes the piece. But a lot of these American scholars, they, they put uh, this maker and that maker, the towns and the goddards up on pedestals, say, from Newport. And by God, these, these examples have been made in Britain for the last... 40 or 50 years, the block and shell style. And okay, so they changed a little bit up in Newport. Nothing drastic, not really. But yet, you know, we, we get on these bends of these regional developments in, in the colonies and uh, they go off on these tangents. So it's uh, becomes 
quite self-deprecating to time. A lot of it comes down to when these individuals want to write a book, so they have nothing else to write about, I guess. The earliest of Chippendale carvings is essentially the same as the very latest carvings found on the high-style Queen Anne pieces. The natural overlapping results in a transitional development. So what I would honestly say that there is not a clear-cut delineation between Queen Anne and Chippendale. There is a definite, a definite transition style resulting on all furniture forms and objects, whether it be chairs, coal buckets, uh, cellarettes, etc. In the 1750s, a realistic rendering of the European canthus leaf results in a flat, two-dimensional manner. As the period progresses and the carver becomes more creative, the acanthus leaf becomes even more lifelike and assumes the wonderful three-dimensional flowing quality so identifiable with the rest of the latest Philadelphia work. It is the acceptance of the Rococo vocabulary of ornamentation from French design sources that finally introduces the rich sculptural and monumental quality innate to the masterpieces of Philadelphia furniture. This probability occurs in the closing years of the revolution. Many of the splatbacks manifest themselves as a delicate delineation and precise definition in the open quality of the carving and establishes a sense of the academics prevalent in the fine French work. As we study the earliest Chippendale chairs, one would appear to be the result of merely replacing the yoke crest rail of a Queen Anne with a Cupid's bow, producing now a pronounced ear instead of a rounded shoulder. The line, therefore, continues to be strongly vertical with a relatively small proportioned seat frame. During the late 1750s, the chair had acquired more of a Georgian quality with a greater feeling of vertical mass and an uncomplimented and uncompromised board and pierced splat, the heavier abbreviated cabriole to the leg. The claws of the feet in the beginning were quite embryonic and were not very convincing. Chippendale's director assumes of the proper proportions recommended by Chippendale for achieving a stately elegance, resulting in a broader proportion in a lower chair with a larger seat, a wide flaring back, and a pronounced cabriole to the leg. The claws of the feet are now vigorous and suggest a strength unfamiliar to the Queen Anne form. The Queen Anne form was a little bit on the feminine side, but not really that feminine. It is from this last period that a small group of extravagantly ornamented designs and became chairs in a superficially English style, as this can be seen as in the Benjamin Randolph sample chairs. These have been based on genealogical and ornamented documentation to his shop. It must be remembered, in these shops, there were multiple carvers. No two of these chairs can safely be deemed and ascribed perfectly identical in a set. Their lines, and to a lesser degree, proportions, suggest different cabinet makers. So if a cabinet shop was given a request for 8, 10, or 12 chairs, you know, two sides, 10 arms, etc., um, you would have had possibly three to four furniture makers working on the set. So none of these chairs, even if the same maker, these chairs are so complex in line and design, 
But if you put them three to five feet away, you really can't tell the difference unless the quality was, was quite ill. But nevertheless, always made by multiple, multiple hands. The sculpting was generally made by a certain set of artisans and the, the building of the chair was made by another and then yet a finishing by another. Labeled chairs, which are, which are the scholars, only positive means of identifying the work of individual cabinet makers are few in number with major examples surviving by Benjamin Randolph, William Savory, Thomas Tuft, and James Gillingham. The Philadelphia chairmaker rarely used the composite without ballooning the back as well. As a conservation measure, he generally applied a piece of wood to the inside of the back styles to permit the sweeping curves so much part of this design. So again, it was in that sweeping in-cut of the ballooning vertical post, <clears throat> he was saving a lot of lumber by adding a piece to both sides. In the same vein, to conserve wood, he applied his seat rim to the massive members making up the seat frame. From the middle of the Queen Anne period on, he invariably extended his seat frame tenons through the back styles, producing an exposed tenon. So in Philadelphia, it's, it's one of the really own, only cabinet-making schools in the colonies, um, showing the exposed tenon through the back post. And this was generally not at all found in England. So this was truly an American product. Very difficult to cut um, a perfectly parallel mortise through, and then it's accompanying tenon. So it's a very, very difficult feature for the cabinet maker. This, this feature is really seen, other than the, the Connecticut Valley and in the west of England. In both the Queen Anne and Chippendale periods, the stump leg was the rule as opposed to the variety of shaped leg forms common in other colonial schools. And, and again, when we, we talk about a style or a city in the, in the colonies, we're talking, we call them a school, the Philadelphia school, the, the Baltimore school, the Savannah school. Um, and that was their regional characteristics is what we're referring to. The internal construction corner blocks of the Chippendale chair were made up of two pieces of vertically grained secondary pine timber glued together and dressed to a quarter round shape. The early Queen Anne chairs frequently had veneered walnut splats in skirts of walnut core wood, an English feature and probably indicative of an earlier date. Finally, the undersides of the seat skirts of Chippendale examples are usually shaped to some degree. All these features are significantly pre prevalent to have been part of the instruction learned during one's apprenticeship.